Hello and welcome to the White Allies podcast. My name is Josephine Namsisi Riley. And the first thing I want to say is that I'm a black woman of African descent and I'm here to talk to white people. Why? Well, I was called to do something after the murder of George Floyd. The impact of his death made me feel deeply upset. And after months of reflection, I felt we needed to find an alternative way to tackle the challenges that clearly led to his death. I have lived in the UK for over 30 years, and I have experienced racism in this country, from the outrageous to the subtle, to the very point where I was doubting myself. Sometimes, because when I verbalized my concerns, I was made to feel it was all in my head that I was imagining things. So after agonizing on what to do, an innocent walk with a friend led me to this path. I have to confess that I'm not being that not being listened to and or understood by white people made me think that if we hear more stories from white people themselves in situations where they witness racism and all know that they have benefited from their privilege, it would go a long way in our struggle to be heard, acknowledged and understood. But more than that, we would have allies collaborating some of our experiences to the majority white population who might feel tired, afraid or doubtful of how they can help to tackle this problem. I must confess that I'm coming to this as an ordinary black woman. I have very limited ideological or expert knowledge about racism. I'm not a historian or an academic. I just felt compelled to create a space where we can hear from white allies to reduce our frustration and the burden of black and brown people from having to do the heavy work to tackle and eradicate racism. Have you got a story to share? Are you an influential person with a big following to help us reach more people? Then we would love to hear from you. Maybe you are just an ordinary person, just like me. Every story is powerful. Please step up. Stories are a powerful communication tool. They capture our ability to imagine, to connect, to remember and understand issues in our society and the lives of those affected. These stories will help others to connect, to understand and to acknowledge the unfairness of racism and the advantages of inherent privilege. I hope this will lead to individual white people making conscious decisions to take anti-racist action. After all, systems, structures, and institutions are made of individuals, from faith institutions to supervisors and managers in organizations and companies who have the power to make change. This power lies in the hands of majority white people. So, this first episode is mainly about me and why I have mastered the courage to do this work. My interviewer is a young woman called Abigail, who heard about my initiative and dedicated her time to support me. I'm so grateful for your support, Abigail. Welcome to the White Allies podcast. My name's Abigail, um, and I am a friend of yours who's been volunteering with White Allies. And I've come here to chat to you about White Allies and... Could you tell me a bit more about what White Allies is and introduce yourself? 
Yeah, so um, thank you Ups, for um, coming and I'm really excited about this being our first podcast. Um, so my name is Josephine and I'm Sissy Riley. I am married and I've got three children. I um, work for Citizens UK, um, running a maternal mental health project in South London called Parents and Communities Together, or PACT for short. Uh, it's a parent-led project set up to reduce isolation and improve the mental health and well-being of parents of young children and their families. So we are just a community of parents, faith and community leaders who work in partnership with health and social care professionals um, to improve access to services. Um, but yeah, White Allies is not part of my role um, officially, although the work is very close to similar to what Citizens UK might do. And it's um, an initiative really to invite white people to give their testimonies or bear witness really um, where they have uh, witnessed racism and also all benefited from their white privilege. And yeah, it sort of started last year after the murder of George Floyd. So I know that the idea of white allies came about after the murder of George Floyd and after some conversations that you'd had with a friend. Could you tell me a bit more about this friend and what the this conversation was about? Yes, so um, I've got this friend who lives around the corner and we've known each other since uh, both our oldest um, were born. I think we met at a play group um, and you know, a couple of years ago, we decided that we would go walking around our local park once a week just to catch up. And of course, that came to an end when the lockdown um, came into effect. Um, and then during that lockdown, um, George Floyd was murdered. And I found myself really, really upset. I was so emotional and I just... I was thinking, where are my white friends? Why aren't they checking on me? Um, but, you know, I think I was just in that emotional state and beginning to question um, whether, you know, maybe some of my friends were also racist. But anyway, um, a couple of my colleagues reached out and that really put that to bed. Um, I was like, come on, snap out of it. Um, but anyway, as the lockdown was easing, uh, we reconnected and decided we were allowed to go walking with one other person. So we set up an appointment, you know, go early in the morning, seven o'clock. And I remember thinking, because my friend is white, she's American, I was still in the throes of anger and I remember thinking, I don't really want to talk about George Floyd. I don't want to talk about Donald Trump. I don't want to talk about Black Lives Matter. I just want to have like a nice conversation with my friend rather than venting. Um, but that didn't work. Within five minutes, we are literally talking about all three of the above. 
Um, and during that exchange, my friend told me a story about Hassan, who was running to his basketball training on a Saturday morning, um, right past my house here. And it was a bit chilly. He was late and he was wearing a big oversized hoodie. As a tall guy, like teenager, you know, and um, he was running because his coach apparently was very strict. So all of a sudden, a police car stops and two officers approach him. So he's a bit startled, you know, teenagers, he's just waking up, he's just, you know, going about his business. And he stops, takes his, his hood down, and the officers go, oh, are you okay? Are you in any trouble? Is anyone chasing you? And my friend said that that incident helped Hassan to um, understand his privilege because 90% of his mates at basketball or football were black and that exchange would have been totally different if it was one of them. So that's where um, the idea came from because I remember thinking, my goodness, that is such a simple but yet very powerful story. Um, and I thought if we could hear more stories from allies, um, I think that that would help others as well understand um, our experience of racism. Okay. And so this story was about this young white man recognizing his racial privilege as a white person and how did that lead you to to think that other white people sharing similar stories would kind of have an impact um or be a kind of powerful mechanism for change i suppose what was it about that that made you think okay i need to roll this out on a much broader scale um it didn't come straight away but um, I think stories are powerful. They literally, I think they cut through all the fluff. Um, my experience of racism in this country is so common, but my biggest frustration is when I share my experiences, people often explain it away or they say, oh no, you misunderstood. There's a lot of denial. There's a lot of, you know, I don't feel hard. And that is sometimes makes me think I can't be bothered to like tell people because A, they don't believe me. They think it's ego. They think I'm making it up. Um, and so I thought if they heard the reverse from people that look like them, then that would have a different um, impact, I thought. And since that idea formed in my head, I've spoken to quite a few people in my network, my friends, my colleagues at work, and I tell them that story and everybody gets it. And so white people have that privilege, they have the power because A, they occupy positions of responsibility in the majority of institutions, generally in life, really. Uh, but also, you know, 
they're the ones that are more likely to be racist um, towards black people. So I feel like they're the ones that need to do that work. We can scream and shout all we like, but I think the people that are more likely to be racist need to do something about it. So I think we should definitely come back to the kind of purpose of what allies sharing their stories and how you think that that will actually create change. But I think you just touched upon your experience of racism in the UK. It might be helpful to hear more about that and reflect on your story as a Ugandan woman. Um, And when I was thinking about us having this discussion, I was thinking about the fact that you came here from a country which is predominantly black. When you first came to the UK, was that the first experience that you had of feeling like you were a black woman or was that your first experience of racism when you came to this country? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've (laughs) in Uganda, I just never had any issue about identity. You know, I remember arriving at the airport and this immigration officer saying, in my passport, it said that I was five foot four. And he looked at me and he said, you're not five foot four. I said, what do you mean? He said, you're taller than that. I said, I don't know. I've never needed to, to, to know my height. Um, so a lot of things that in Uganda, we don't, you know, like somebody's age or, you know. And yeah, I was just me. And the majority of people looked like me. And when I came to the UK, I remember my only concern was that I'll be able to communicate effectively in English. And I remember my first, apart from seeing lots and lots of white people, I had to do some work to find, you know, to earn a living. And I realized that I'd joined an underclass of people. We were all chambermaids in this hotel and we were all black. We were all immigrants. And that is the first time that I thought, well, this is different. And so I started kind of getting that sense that I I was different and, you know, and the expectations from people were like, that is what you do. You clean and you scrub floors. And um, so that, I think that was my first um, time when I thought, hmm, something is, is not right. And you've um, spoken a little bit earlier on about how, as a black person, when you've tried to speak up about injustices, racism, your voice has just been silenced away. I know that um, you've had an experience when you were working in a school. So, yeah, um, I mean, my children went to a really good school in South London and it is a church school and, uh, you know, I'm a member of that community. But because it's a good school, I felt really lucky that uh, my children got to go there. And at the time I was working for an education charity, children's education charity called School Home Support. And through that work, I felt like I could contribute something to the school. So I campaigned a couple of times and I wasn't successful. But anyway, um, later on, I was appointed as a foundation governor. And at my first meeting, I remember asking the question that had troubled me throughout my experience of that school in that there were no 
black teachers. I mean, we live in South London. So I asked her that we were talking about something like heavier policy. And I just said, well, why are there no black teachers in this school? And, you know, there was about 14 to 15 people. And um, I wasn't the only black person there. There was another person I think who was black at the time and some other people from you know, a range of backgrounds, but the majority of people were white and the head teacher was too. And he said to me, oh, we only ever employ the best teachers. And my answer to that, to that was that I found it, I find it very difficult to explain to my children that there was not a good enough black teacher to teach in that school. But nobody else said anything. Nobody challenged, it was like, as if I was, why is she even asking that? Um, and so I set about, I made a, a, a commitment to try and get the school to diversify the teaching staff. And I was, I was on that governing body for seven years. Two of those years I was vice chair. The other two years I was chair. And I got to a point where it was a losing battle because even the governing body had become very white. It was not as diverse uh, as it was when I joined. And um, I asked specifically that we do something about it and felt ignored. So I resigned in protest. But that was a really difficult decision because I, I thought, well, what good am I going to do? I have failed here. But that was a, a key for me, a key moment when I realized that my voice doesn't, is not hard. I just talk and people don't want to listen. What was interesting is that people, when they were talking to me one-to-one, -one, they acknowledged it, but they didn't use their voice to challenge it. But, you know, the head teachers would say it's very, very hard. It's very, very hard to find a black teacher. And um, one day I went to Uganda for a holiday um, to visit my family. And when I came back, my daughter said to me, she'd met the most inspiring woman. I was like, oh, for starters, it wasn't me. And I was like, I want to meet this person because she said that this woman was a teacher. So I, um, through someone else, arranged to meet this woman. Uh, we went to, for coffee and we sat down and I said, my goodness, you left such an impression on my daughter. I said, what do you do? You're a teacher, where are you teaching? Would you ever consider teaching um, at this school where I'm governor? She said, my goodness, that was the school I wanted to teach. And I contacted them, I emailed, and I'd never heard back. And I thought, what? When parents ring up and they say, we would like to um, look at your school because we want to consider bringing our children there, they get a tour of the school. Mm. I'm thinking, and a black teacher contacts you, says, I'm really interested, would you have any opportunities? Doesn't even get a response, doesn't wow. even get a, nothing. Mm. And of course, she was snapped up somewhere else. So this whole thing about 
if you really wanted to make a difference for the children to see people that look like them, you know, you would do it. It was almost like this woman fell at their doorstep, um, but they didn't do anything about it. Yeah, and I think that the other thing about that story is it kind of, it highlights the fact that I think a lot of the focus is on systemic change, laws, policies, procedures, um, and taking it away from the individual, not focusing on changing the hearts and minds of individual white people, and instead just going straight for systemic or institutionalized change. And I think I definitely used to feel like that about it. I just thought there's no point in wasting your time. But I think through talking with you and hearing more about white allies and the kind of whole concept of the project, it has made me really reflect on the fact that when we talk about structural change, we sometimes forget that within these structures, whether they be our legal systems or our educational systems, um, healthcare systems, they're not just machines. They are made up of people in the UK, the people with the power in these systems are predominantly white people. And I think that story about the school, both stories, just highlight the fact that it is important to get white people to reflect on our privilege and our kind of blindness to racism. Because at the end of the day, in many places, we're going to be the people who have the power to actually affect change. And did you ever think about it in that way beforehand? Did you ever think previously to starting this project, you know, there's no point in trying to change the minds of white people or trying to change this, their approach. We need to just go, go to the top. We just need to work on policies, law change, that kind of thing. I've always thought if something was troubling me, the first thing I do is talk to my children about it, you know, because I think that if, if I raise my children uh, to understand um, and appreciate and understand fairness or whatever the subject is, then I'll be making a difference. And if all parents did that, it would be the same. So um, the, the, the issue of institutional racism, to be honest, it came from my experience of working with the school. Um, but I've always felt uh, protected by the law and um, by policies and procedures, diversity and inclusion. I appreciate all of that. I really do. But I also know, and I've known this, that these process, procedures and laws are implemented by people. And so the problem as to why they don't work very well is because people are just doing their job, you know, uh, or they want to be racist towards you because they know they would get in trouble. It's against the law. And I felt that that work that sits underneath the procedures and the policies, people haven't really done that work. They haven't really thought about how they feel or what, they're just doing their job and they want to do their job well. So they will meet their targets and their quotas, but it doesn't necessarily, it has not resulted, resulted into the change that we want to see. Um, and so 
that's why I think it's important that people do that. I mean, there's so many good causes. So if you think about, you know, um, child labor, even something as simple as vegetarianism. So, you know, I should not really eat too much meat, uh, but I, and I know what, that I could, but it hasn't really, I don't, I haven't really done the work that means that I can stop. Um, I'm aware. So I compare that to racism because, you know, it's like there's so many things that you can be doing. But if you don't make a personal commitment, and it might be hard to start with, but like everything else, it gets easier as long as you make that commitment. I think it also strikes on the fact that a lot of white people are scared of getting it wrong or saying the wrong thing. Um, and I'm in your story about the governors, perhaps that was some of the other governors' feelings. I'm, I don't know if I'm just completely giving them the benefit of the doubt there. But how do you think that um, creating this space for white people to reflect, share their stories anonymously, a safe space online, how do you think that that will kind of help some white people who are scared of saying the wrong thing or getting it wrong? And was that a factor in you deciding to come up with this kind of concept in the first place? So, yes, because um, at the time when I was um, thinking about this last year, you know, Black Lives Matter was in full swing um, and people were, you know, Hosting black squares, everybody was doing something um, because of the outrage and the impact of, of that man's death. Um, but I was also aware that, and I'm not online a, a, a lot, but I was aware through my friends and my kids that there was a lot of conversations about, um, you know, white people just... Um, I don't know, like playing lip service, lots of companies, lots of organizations put out stories. But there was, underneath that, people were like, yeah, you know, we've had that before and what difference mm -hmm. is that going to make? And I I can only use this analogy of, of the, our reactions as human beings mm -hmm. when you find yourself in a situation where you either fight um, or run, as in flight, or freeze. And I think a lot of people were, a lot of white people were with black people, you know, Black Lives Matter, it was brilliant to see that, especially the, the younger generation. But there were also a lot of people who were making a mistake about, you know, language or, you know, about culture and who were being slated. Um, and I just imagine what it would be like to be a white person. I'd probably be frozen myself, like, oh, I don't know what to do. And so I felt that if we created a safe space where white people can reflect and share some of those stories without fear of the repercussions, uh, because what we want to do is not to blame white people. We want white, we want the change um, in white people, not just a change of heart, but a change of behavior. And yeah, that's why I thought 
that having this platform would be a good start. And then hopefully have conversations, start thinking, look, I, you know, I'm going to talk to my children, I'm going to talk to my friends. Some people can just read the stories. I mean, some of the stories that have already come in are incredible like really incredible. It makes you stop and think. And so I'm hoping that once some people read some of those stories, it will help them to reflect. The, the fact that you would come away from that feeling <laughs> about how white people might be feeling is just really remarkable to me. First and foremost, as human beings, we learn more through mistakes and fear. If you allow fear to rule your life you're limiting yourself in the way that you learn um so and and we've all made mistakes like you know it is i mean the language has changed so much i mean i prefer to use the words black and brown people some people don't like that some people don't like people of color some people don't like black and minority ethnic it's like what, what well what do you say um and so we are going to get it wrong because every individual black person that you will find will have a preference. From a very young age, I paid attention to how people made me feel as a child. Because when I was born, my father, for some weird reason, decided that I wasn't his child. And I remember how that made me feel. Like he would say to my mom, go take her to her father. So there was a, a, a feeling of rejection that was really painful. And I remember saying to my mom, well, why don't we just leave? Because it was just really unbearable. Um, but that helped me to understand my own feelings. And so I pay attention mm. to how I make other people feel. So in some ways, it wasn't that I wasn't thinking about how black people felt. I remember my daughter saying to me, well, mommy, why are you giving more space to like white people? And so I'm, a, I'm not saying that black people's feelings don't matter, but what we need is the change. And that change is going to come from how white people treat us. A lot of the time people, when we talk about racism or when these spaces are created, whether they're BAME working groups or diversity and inclusion panels, uh, the burden is put on black and brown people to make those changes or come up with the solutions. So it's like racism is always seen as a, as a black issue, as a brown issue, and it's never, it's never ever seen as a, a problem for white people or a thing that we need to address or that, that the burden should be on us to, to actually fix. So I think that that is another really powerful element of white allies. Really what we're trying to do is find a non-offensive way or a, a palatable way to tackle the problems that what people should be fixing. And we're there trying to, you know, think, oh no, that would be too expensive. Oh no, that would be too controversial. What, you know, what proposals should we put forward? I'm thinking, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm done with sitting in those spaces because, you know, look what happened with COVID, right? The government stepped up immediately and said, you and you and you and you, you are vulnerable. So you need to be protected. 
look how we've managed with the um, vaccines. We started with the most vulnerable. Excuse me, racism, I am the most vulnerable. Why am I doing the work? I think having white people take racism on as, a, as our issue, as something that we have to actively work to end. It's like having inside help. Do you, do you think that the fight to end racism could be fought by black people alone in this country or do you think it needs to be a broader coalition? Uh, this is why I'm doing this work. Mm. Um, because black people, they have been fighting, you know. Um, statistics tell you um, this last week, um, a group of mums from my project got together to share their experiences of labour and childbirth. And because after that program, I think it was dispatches that talked about um, black women being four or five likely more, uh, five times more likely to die. Um, mm-hmm during or around childbirth um, was aired. And um, two of our parents decided to have this conversation and 17 black women turned up, mothers on Zoom. Mm. And I joined to listen and I was horrified. Mm. I was horrified, but then I also had the benefit of some stories from maternity services that proved what these women were talking about. You know, people being told, when you're a mother, you have this instinct if something is wrong. I'm not saying that some people are not paranoid, but when you think something is wrong with your baby, your baby is about to arrive and you're saying, I think Mm. something is wrong. Why would anybody say to you, just go home? People were being treated like dogs. I was thinking, this is just 17 people, all of whom had something horrible to say. So we, as black people, yes, I was there and my heart was just bleeding. And I was thinking, well, what do we do? Where are the maternity services? That's who needs to be doing the work. Then the white, you know, midwives or you know they're the ones that need to be doing the work because what is interesting is even within those spaces the black people that work there see what's going on but they're afraid to speak um but i i I came into contact with somebody who um recently who got interested in in this work and he asked me a question he said if I were a potential white ally, what is the thing that you would most want me to do? And I was, it's all the things that we've said here, like, you know, uh, do the work, you know, challenge unfairness when you see it. And he was like, but what, you know, but what else? But, you know, like people want to do these big things. And I think that's where the white savior thing comes in. Honestly, we need to start with the small things. But anyway, during that conversation, I was unable to persuade him. And I said, look, why don't I go and talk to some other people and ask that question and see what they say? Mm. And honestly, some of the responses I had, there was no, nobody said, give us a job, like treat us uh, in a special way. People were like, 
Come on, challenge and bring awareness to your subtle biases. Be my advocate when I'm not in the room. Listen without judgment or defense. It is the simplest of things that make a difference because ultimately when you are interacting with people, those are your experiences. We, you know, the big gestures and the laws, they're all well and good. But all we're asking people to do are the simple things that mm. don't take they don't cost you anything. That just made me think about the report on racism in the UK that the the Conservative government came out with recently, which was uh, intended to look into whether or not systemic racism is, is still a problem in the UK. Um, and that was set up in the wake of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations and the calls for change. And that was recently published. And, you know the findings were pretty abysmal because they basically said that I think black and brown people had a victim mentality and that there was no systemic racism anywhere in the UK, that we'd come so far. Um, but I think, well, could maybe could you reflect on that a bit? It was so disturbing. I was just upset um, for days after that report came out because no matter, I mean, the thing about this work is that I'm not an expert in anything. I'm just an ordinary immigrant black woman that just wants to do something to see if it will help because I believe it would. Um, so imagine if Mr. Boris told a story about benefiting from his privilege or people in positions of power. I mean, this, you can commission as many reports as you like. And people will always find a way to persuade you that, you know, you're wrong or, you know, people do research when they know the answer already and, mm -hmm. and they make that research work for them. Um, so that report, I really, I haven't read it in its entirety. And so I can't comment so much. My reflection on it is that it's almost white privilege in action mm. to some, for somebody to dismiss our experience, our, uh, our collective experiences as a people, millions of people, and bring it down to something as offensive as, I'm not saying that victim mentality doesn't exist, but for goodness sake, I just thought it was, um, I feel sorry for, for, for the people that I think were put in those, uh, in that position. And um, of course they are very, you know, educated and highly intelligent people. So they um, can articulate and defend what they've done. But I, I think ask the rest of us, like ask the millions, so I, I think that if Boris or anybody else wants to do something about it, I challenge them to tell a story where they know that they have witnessed racism and discrimination or where they know that they have benefited from their privilege. After we've reflected on this, after we've shared these stories and read these stories, borne witness to other stories from other white people, 
what do you see is the next step for the White Allies project? How, how will white people reflecting on this and sharing these stories, how is that going to actually lead to change um, and lead to dismantling of racist structures and white supremacy, I guess? So, yeah, that's a, a good question. And I, 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 mm-hmm. I hope, that, I feel like I need to do some kind of pilot to, to give you the answer. But my hope is that people will make a conscious commitment um, to being anti-racist. One of the interesting things that have come out of the stories that we have received so far is so many of them are from people who have witnessed racism or had racist jokes from their parents, from their colleagues, from the, and did not do mm-hmm. anything about it. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like they are unprepared, you know? And I feel that if people do this work, if white allies think about their uh, privilege and share some stories, I'm hoping that they will make a conscious decision to be anti-racist and they will be better prepared. Whatever that works, that works out to be, that they'll be more prepared not to be silent. If you're aware of how your behavior impacts on other people, you do the right thing. It's like wearing a mask, you know? It becomes common sense and it would be probably harder to start with for those people that are doing it for the first time. But then it becomes part of your, of the way you live. And if we can create a generation of people that believe and live what they believe, I think that is true allyship. Mm. Right. Thank you so much, Joe. It's been really good to talk to you about this and I'm so excited for the future of White Allies. You can check out stories from Allies by visiting our website at www.whiteallies.org. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at White Allies UK. These contact details and links will be included in the description of this podcast for easy access to them.